Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We who have enjoyed the greatest material prosperity in all of history are so steeped in that prosperity that we are unaware of our amazing position in the world. So when I suggest that our overabundance of both property and security, not to mention freedom, has made us dangerously blind to some vitally important truths, I believe that is a supportable statement. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, that comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise. And we have stated many times before this message that we should not ever compare one set of sufferings to another. It's obviously foolish for a man with a broken limb to disregard his need for help just because he sees another person who has several broken limbs. Comparing ourselves by the misfortune of others may give some needed perspective, but it will not heal the broken limb. We're all in need of help. So when I point out our relative security in the West and our lack of awareness of certain kinds and degrees of real suffering in the other parts of the world, I know I'm taking the chance of miscommunicating my real point. The point is not to say, look at what we have and then look at what they do not have and then to feel ashamed of ourselves for for having it. No, the point is this. Except for cases of unusual injustice, which sadly are increasing daily in our culture, most of us have never known what it's like to have to forgive what we would call the unforgivable. Few of us are acquainted with anyone we care for who has been subject to humanly imposed cruelty and horror on the scale which many of our brothers and sisters in the Lord are suffering right now at this precise moment, as well as many who have suffered such evil in the past. Those who have lived through such terrible times are able and willing to teach us lessons we are soon possibly going to need to learn. Now, is it reasonable to attempt to prepare ourselves for that possibility? Can we, should we, consider such a possible coming conflict? Are we able to do it? And if we say yes, then should we do it? Can it be done without being considered what some might call morbid? Or at least just borrowing trouble? And can we prepare for the eventuality of such a demand on us with any sense of reality? I mean, how would you do it? Again, we ourselves have always taught that God does not give us grace for imaginary suffering. And I still believe that. We learn from Corey ten Boom that God does not give us dying grace until we are really dying. He does not grant grace to face real evil that is residing only in our imaginations. It's only when the real trial is present and unavoidable that he gives us grace for that hour. We surely know by now that we cannot see some terrible story 
or read about some mind-numbing suffering and then try to look inside to find if we have what it takes to respond faithfully in the same circumstances. So since we have repeatedly established those truths, why am I asking if we are properly awake in the face of the current and increasingly dangerous climate we are now facing? Well, I'm not seeking to contradict what I've already been teaching. We cannot anticipate what dangers the coming days may bring us. And we cannot expect dying grace to be given while we are alive and well, cozily tucked into our dinner tables with our friends and family nearby and sleeping in warm, safe beds at night. So before we go forward in this message, let's establish what we are not addressing We're not asking you or ourselves to examine our greatest fears and then to try to buck ourselves up in the face of them while comforting ourselves with a thoroughly American happy ending imagination or expecting some supernatural blanket of protection to just wrap around us as the movie we play in our heads comes to a happy ending and cuts to a commercial. I'm not asking us to try to think the worst in order to see if we are free from the emotions that accompany trying times. We're not going to try to face ourselves to face some terrible scenario and compare how the people in the real story handled it and then look to see if we have what it takes to potentially do the same. But all that being true, does that mean then that the only alternative to comparing ourselves among ourselves or imaginations suffering that we are not really facing is to just ignore the reality of this present darkness? Obviously, that can't be the right conclusion. So what is the third way? I believe we can and must find it, and I believe the Holy Spirit will help us to embrace it. All we need to do after we have truly rejected the wrong concepts or the fanciful or useless ways of thinking that we have just examined is to examine, not in an introspective, morbid way, but with the Holy Spirit's help, if we have truly done what we claim we know we must do in the situations that we really are living in, and really are facing. Not imaginary suffering. Real struggles. Real conflicts. It is not wise to check yourself to see if you could forgive your child's imaginary rapist if you have not forgiven the real flesh and blood boss at your real daily job who you just can't stand. And why compare yourself to some hero of faith standing against the tide of evil in Syria or Iraq if you can't stand your ground for what is right in your golf games or at the business meetings where being faithful to Christ may cost you something on that mere human level. No, we're not to compare ourselves with others to see if we measure up, but we are to examine ourselves to see if we are living out our faith. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 tells us, I sit here in my ivory tower study and I'm painfully aware as I write this that I am not being called upon to take stands in the marketplace or in other aspects of daily the daily work world that I know many of you have to deal with. 
So I offer these words humbly and in the fear of the Lord. I am aware of sitting here spouting out directives to you who face areas of pressure in your daily lives that, I, that I'm not ever tested in. So where can I apply this message to myself? And that message I need to apply is this. Here's the point. Have I taken up my cross in following Jesus no matter where it leads or what death I may end up having to die on it? No, I know I cannot check myself out ahead of time to see if I will stand the ultimate test, but I have at least taken seriously the demands I do have upon me and have and, and I question if I have responded as a man who does truly believe what I say I believe. God does not expect us to just become instant martyrs. He wisely leads us into battles and trials designed to address our still present old life so we can learn to live in the power of the new life in the spirit and not give in to the flesh. Jesus said, if I'm faithful in small things, he has promised to make me ruler over larger things. Luke 16 verse 10. So we need to stop wasting time and energy, if that's what we've been doing, on wondering if we have what it takes to die for the Lord or suffer for his name and see where we are disobeying him in the smaller daily battles where we're not dying or suffering all that much. Do I love my neighbor? Do I love my enemies? Do I love those I'm not directly related to in daily life, but who I consider enemies, such as politicians, criminals, or those in the commercial or entertainment world who openly resist the good and openly work hard to propagate the evil? I've often heard myself say out loud, and sometimes with absolutely no sense of inner conflict over it, God, I do not love these people. Now you can fill in the blanks. What people? There's no sense in trying to hide it from him. <laughs> when I say that I when I say that I say that to the Lord, I, I'm not trying to be arrogant and I'm just I'm just trying to be honest. I'm both trying to confess it as sin while at the same time I'm kind of enjoying saying it out loud. And saying it to him is both an honest statement of fact and a smaller but growing prayer that I might become more like him in my heart response to enemies. I'm more aware every day I live that much of my anger at certain kinds of people is rooted in the fact that their particular brand of evil which they are peddling in the media or movies or music or government is noxious to me directly mainly because it reminds me of the sins I used to secretly engage in. I've told this story on other places, other occasions before, so I won't repeat it in great detail, but once in a restaurant bar in Little Rock, when I felt, an ex I felt this explosion of rage well up in me over what was pouring out of the TV screens in a public place where children were present, the Lord later made it clear to me how only one-third of my wrath was acceptable in his eyes. The part that truly loved him, that 
truly loved people and truly hated evil, well, that was healthy and it was right. But there were two other energies mixed in that anger that was not acceptable to the Lord. In fact, they were more evil in his eyes than the evil that I claimed to be raging against. And they were, number one, I was angry because what was on the screen was still more, on certain occasions, attractive to me on a lower carnal level. And I resented the fact that having that put in my face made me feel it and be aware of it. Number two, I resented those on the screen who still enjoyed access to that world that I had left behind. So one-third of my righteous indignation was real. Two-thirds were evil. And how many of you know if you mix two parts bad with one part good, it's all bad. The point I hope we're beginning to get here is that terrible times may be ahead. It's a common human coping mechanism that either denies it or, if not that, assumes that when it does come, we will be ready for it. These thoughts are always vague and misty and lacking in any concrete clarity of wisdom, but they serve to falsely comfort us and help us move on ahead with no regard for our true condition. The wonderful fact is that if we will stop, humble ourselves before the Lord and just ask Him, He has promised to show us things to come, correct us in our self-deceptions, and empower us for the bigger, more demanding, but less impending tasks. If we truly seek to obey Him in the smaller, real tasks that we have right in front of us that we don't have to wonder about. Jesus said one of the most important but little known truths in the scriptures. John 7 verse 17. If you will do what I say, you will come to know it is true. That's not exactly the best translation. Let me expand it to fill in the the cracks a little bit for its proper meaning. If anyone has a will set to do God's will, then as he moves forward in seeking to do it, God will come to know, or you will come to know, that it is from God, not from mere human ideas. I guess that is the main force behind this teaching today. This is the one thing I most want to get across. Am I... Or are we set in our wills to actively seek and obey what God wants us to do? Or are we just generally claiming to believe the right things without making them the focus of our daily actions and activities? The moment we set ourselves to obey Him, we then begin to receive a flow of understanding of what it is He wants us to do. Can I face martyrdom or endure torture? Well, if that is not before you today, it is most likely not the line on which the Lord is focused in relation to you. But I do have difficulty with maybe a neighbor or an infuriating brother-in-law or a wayward teenager or a disappointing spouse or a friend who's betrayed me or a painful failure in my business or a frustrating church situation, or I could go on and on and on. I think you get it. 
what is before me is what is. And that is what I am to seek God on how to respond to. If I have set my will to do his will, then he sets his will to show me what I need to know. Do you get that? So when you read that scripture I just quoted in its English translation, it can misguide us. If you will to do his will, then you'll know. Well, that doesn't mean if you're just passively willing to know his will. It means if you set your will and are moving in a direction you believe is his will or hope is his will, of being willing and letting God do all the revealing. It's an active desire to know God and his will that brings God's willing response. Psalm 112, verse 7 and 8, He shall not be afraid of bad news. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. These have no fear. Their hearts are secure in the Lord. Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4, What time I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will not fear what men can do to me. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 29 through 33. But they hated knowledge, and they did not choose the fear of the Lord. They rejected my counsel and despised my correction. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own wisdom, their own way of handling things. And they will become filled with only their own devices. This is what's going on in our whole culture. This is the Congress of the United States I'm reading about here. This is the, these are the governments of the states of the whole United States. This is the British government and the German government. They, they're given over to their own way and they're going to be filled with their own useless, ignorant, wrong-headed devices. For the ease of the simple shall slay them. The word ease here in Hebrew could be translated those who turn away from the truth. They're, they're at, at ease in the sense that they don't want to hear anything that contradicts their own preconceived idea of how things are supposed to be. And the ease they feel is a counterfeit peace that will bring destruction. This is a direct relation to 1 Thessalonians 5 when they say peace, peace, uh, sudden destruction will come. The ease of the simple, the word simple doesn't mean they're simple in the sense of being childlike. It means they're stupid, they're foolish. They only see things through the tiny prism of their own little uh, eye glasses. It says the prosperity of fools will destroy them. Their prosperity, their seeming safety and security in the present moment. This is what this is what keeps me awake sometimes in prayer for America. The prosperity of fools will destroy them. Because in our ease we turn away from the truth and we become simplistic fools. But whoever hearkens to to the Lord shall dwell safely and be quiet from the fear of coming evil. I want you to be quiet in your heart when it comes to the fear of evil that may be coming. How do we do that? Well, we listen to God. Well, what do we listen to God about? What, what is it he's saying that we have to hear? You may notice that almost all of the examples I listed previously 
uh, that we do have right in front of us on a day-to-day mundane basis, we're addressing relationships. Now, yes, there may be some issues now and then which are difficulties that are not directly related to people and how to relate to people, but mostly our main struggle is with people, with relationships. The entire earthbound life is for the very purpose of teaching us how to love. That's it. Anything else is way second. If we win a battle in life but fail at love, we have won the battle but lost the war. Thankfully, it's a process. Not one question test that we have to pass or fail, but a process we have to live through day by day. It's never too late to go back and respond in love where you may have failed to do before. I know all about that. I can't tell you the times I've had to go back, which is another way of saying repent, and say I'm deeply sorry for what I said or what I did. Will you forgive me? When I consider the injuries I've caused in the past and some more recent, though thankfully not so blatant, I'm deeply moved by the mercy of God and his kindness in his dealings with me. Whenever I'm sitting with a hurting person, listening to them tell their story, often with tears pouring down their face, as they explain to me some terrible injury done to them in the past, I'm first aware of my sense of anger at the perpetrator. But it only takes a moment before I'm aware of my own sins. And I can't help but wonder if or how many people somewhere may be sitting with some pastor or counselor or friend crying and telling of their pain. And in their story, I am the perpetrator. I don't dwell on it. I know I'm forgiven. I understand the spiritual danger of allowing such thoughts to take me over in some wrong direction. But I'm also aware of another danger, that of not considering these facts. It humbles me. It softens me. And it reminds me why Jesus warned us not to sit in self-righteous judgment He did not say, by the way, don't judge. Jesus never said, don't judge. He said, don't self-righteously judge. We all have to make judgments or we'd be dead from stupidity. Letting the truth of our own sin and how much we have been forgiven be focused upon in our hearts from time to time transforms us into people who are no longer part of the problem but are always seeking how to be part of the answer. The problem is that evil causes mostly the suffering and sorrow of the world that comes to us via human behavior. The answer is truth, forgiveness, and restoration. We've been reconciled to God and have been given 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, the ministry of ongoing reconciliation. Now, listen, I'm like you. I'm not any different than most people when it comes to the subject of forgiveness. We think we know it. We think we've heard it. We think we've 
done it. We think we've done it because we've heard it. And we haven't even fully even heard it. You can tell by the way we talk about it or don't talk about it. Or the way we euphemize it. Or the way we excuse ourselves for not really doing it. Luke 7, 47 implies that to whom is forgiven much, they love much. So to the degree you know you're forgiven, to that degree it should manifest in how you love others, especially the unlovable. And I'm talking to myself right now. I'm talking to me. James 2.13 says, Judgment without mercy will be given to those who show no mercy. Judgment without mercy will be given to those who show no mercy. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Who might we not be showing mercy to? It's sure worth asking the question. If they were standing before you in your courtroom and you had the power to exert final decisive sentencing, how would you judge them? What would you extend to them? In a day when justice is becoming more and more rare and righteous judgment is fading, it's easy to become first jaded, then cynical, then bitter. And if not careful, an angry vengeance rises in us against evil, which may seem righteous and even logical, but it can be a mask of a self-righteous and even demonic hatred that is the very opposite of the gospel opposite of the heart of our King and Lord and Savior. Have you ever caught yourself, even if only within the secret confines of your own mind, thinking something like this? Well, the gospel is all well and good, but sometimes there's only room for justice. We may not realize that we are not only dishonoring the very gospel by which we were saved from evil, but we are consciously or not making a difference between love and justice. As if they are opposites of one another. Justice is not the opposite of love, folks. Psalm 85 verse 10, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed one another. There is no war between what is right and what is merciful. God did not disregard truth when he manifested mercy. We do not have to choose between what is righteous or what is peaceful. We are called to live in and manifest both, for they are not in opposition. They are rooted in one reality, and that is the love and holiness of God. I said one reality, then I named love and holiness because love and holiness are not two separate subjects. The love of God and the holiness of God are the same. I recognize the Hebraic differences and the nuances of difference. I know that, but don't think God could be holy and not be love and don't think God could be love and not be holy. It's a common theme in some circles, and I have made this mistake myself, to seek to balance the message of God's love by reminding people that God is love, but he's also holy. 
the mindset is, no, let's not get carried away with focusing too much on love. There's a danger if we do that. Though God loves us, we must always remember that he is also a holy God and will avenge all evil. And I don't mean to put inflections in my voice that make fun of the reference to God's holiness, but I do intend fully to make fun of, if I could say that, the wrong demonstration and presentation of God as if he's schizophrenic. He's the, there's the loving side and there's the angry, vengeful, holy side. Do we really believe avenging all evil is not a loving action? And do we really believe that when love is understood and exalted as the highest, that somehow that the exaltation of love is going to foolishly allow evil to sneak in? Do we? Then no wonder we send forth an uncertain sound and no one knows then how to prepare for battle. 1 Corinthians 14.8 the cry of God's heart to his people in the face of insane evil is Amos 5, verse 24. Let justice roll down like rivers and righteousness as a never-ending stream. If you had only obeyed my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river and your righteousness like a mighty river. Do what is just and right. Deliver the victim from the power of the oppressor. Do not mistreat the stranger or the orphan or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood. Jeremiah 22 verse 3 cries out. Can you find any opposition here between what is loving and what is just? They are the same thing. But what about unforgivable evil? Unforgivable evil is in the newspapers and the news broadcasts every day. Not only across the ocean, but in every large city and in many small areas and even in rural areas. It has become commonplace daily now to read daily stories that used to be once in a blue moon, if not even less. There's a kind of anger that is righteous. It's the zeal of the Lord against evil. Without it, we would be a mindless blob of warm-hearted, good-willed idiots. Without it, we would stand passively by and watch a child be raped or beaten and wish blessing on both the child and the evildoer. It's simply nonsense to try to conceive of a kind of love that has no anger in it. But the difficulty comes when we try to decide for ourselves, apart from the Word and the Spirit of God, how to manifest that anger. Immediate evil demands immediate action. And that action against evil may be rightly raging in that moment. But what happens if we allow our own zeal to flood over into self-righteousness and we then become the exact same form of evil we were originally raging against? A good starting place in dealing with this struggle is this. As a good soldier, we must love what is behind us more than we hate what is in front of us. In other words, our aim is not the annihilation of the wrong person, but the protection of his victim. But with an equal desire to salvage both the wronged person and the wrongdoer. If this makes you angry to hear that, 
It only proves how much work we have to do in becoming like God, who has mercy on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 45, and who is kind to the unjust and the wicked, Luke 6, 35. We began this message reminding ourselves that we are not to compare ourselves with each other and we are not to try to psych ourselves up to a place of being able to do on a large scale what we cannot do on a small scale. We said that God doesn't require us to have dying faith until we're dying. He does, however, require us to have living faith while we're living. That means we are to actively seek to obey Him in whatever situation we find ourselves. If we're going to do that, we're, being, we're ruling over small things. And he's promised to make us eventually ruler over greater things. So as we choose to walk and live in love and grace, he will reward us with greater opportunities to do that more and more. It gets harder, not easier. The ultimate goal is that we become like Jesus and are his hand and his heart extended in the earth. The goal of the manifestation of himself through his people is that we bring the kingdom of God into every aspect of human life on this earth, here and now. That means we are going to become more and more instruments of grace, wisdom, and redemptive love. That means we will become the only people on the earth that knows how to forgive the unforgivable, redeem the unredeemable, bring life where there's been only death, But a scorched earth where evil seems to have purposefully annihilated any hope of good to come is not redemptive. In other words, we become people who are following Jesus by taking up our cross and manifesting the power of his cross through the carrying of our cross. In that process, some, maybe many of us, might die. But people of the cross have already died, and death is of no consequence. We are already living in the power of the world to come, and because we are so heavenly minded, we are of the greatest possible earthly good. That is how Jesus said the world would come to know him in his priestly prayer of John 17. In his great high priestly prayer for us, he prayed that we would become one in unity of heart with him and with each other, and that this would be how the world would come to know him. We are the repairers of the ancient paths, restorers of the breach, salt and light, peacemakers who overcome the world for the sake of the world. We who are not of this world enter the world, refusing to be of the world that we might heal the world. In this, we are taking up our own cross, following the great captain of our salvation. And to do this, it is clear to any awake person who is watching that we will have to forgive what is in the natural human terms unforgivable. We who have been forgiven so much understand something about our sin. We know that what we have been delivered from is potentially, potentially, just as evil as the worst evil done by those we seek to reach. We do not exercise our own self-righteousness and we do not excuse any evil. But we also do not come as judges and executioners. We destroy evil not by manifesting angry evil ourselves, but by manifesting good. 
We overcome evil with that good. No matter how much we want some angry vengeance to be given place, if we are centered in the cross and the empty tomb, we will not find any place for that kind of vengeance. Correction? Yes. Severe retribution? Possibly. Exacting justice? Absolutely. But justice is not revenge. That's why God says, vengeance only belongs to me. I will repay. He's the only one who knows how to bring pure justice without unrighteous vengeance mixing in. Justice is judgment. Judgment does not mean hellfire damnation necessarily. Judgment means putting right whatever has been done wrong, putting things back in order. Who were the judges of the book of Judges? They were the deliverers from evil. If you can lay aside your raging, angry thirst for revenge, assuming you have one, as I have had to do from time to time for many years, and ask God for his heart to be revealed to and in you, you will find that you have to long for the prisoner who's rotting away in the prison because of some horrible crime that he perpetrated. You long for him to be healed and redeemed and restored just as surely as you long for the healing of his victim. If you cannot find mercy for the prisoner but only for the victim, what happens then when you discover that years before it was the prisoner who you want punished who was the helpless little victim, damaged and deformed in soul by a perpetrator before him. Who will you find then to execute? Now, This is not some liberal bleeding heart fantasy scenario that seeks to excuse evil because of evil, but it is a biblical demand for wisdom and true justice to be manifested in redeeming love. This scenario I spell out here is an accurate, and sadly common one. It's the reality. It's being reenacted every day worldwide and terribly in America. On rare occasions I've seen closely related situations where murder cases were involved. In one notorious Texas case, the murderer was a young woman who had hacked her victims to death while under the influence of drugs. She was sentenced to death. While in prison, she was led to Christ and became a powerful witness within the prison, even to the point of being considered a pastor to hundreds of other inmates. And on her execution day, supported by hundreds of people standing outside cheering for her death, uh, I'm still troubled by the memory of the voices of many of those people, many who claim to be Christians, Many who probably were Christians, at least church people, celebrating her execution and even making remarks about how she would soon be rotting in hell. No, the blood of Jesus is only applicable to them because they are good people already. But for the murderers and the child molesters and the perverts and the broken, there's no real mercy. That's just a fantasy that we all all believe uh, applies only in a religious storybook.
You who claim to be forgiven by the same blood that washed her clean of her blood guilt, hopes she rots in hell? Remember the warning of James 2.13? He will be given no mercy that showed no mercy. How will that replay on the day when all hearts are opened and no secrets can be hidden and everything will be laid fully uncovered in the blazing light of the presence in which everything is shown up and seen for what it really is? Your sister in Christ, once a murderer, but forgiven and washed just like you claim to be, but you want her to rot in hell. I trembled at the thought of what anyone that self-deceived is going to have to answer for. And yet, how many of us may have that very heart still lurking within us if put in the same circumstances? I've worked with many people who struggle to forgive what any of us would consider unforgivable on human terms. And I've had to struggle at times in not becoming bitter and vengeful at the person or people who had injured the sufferer I was trying to help. But as much as I believed I was experiencing some at least of their pain and therefore believed I understood them, it became a totally different thing entirely when I found myself a few years ago faced with an event which was not displaced from me but was very close to the core of my own heart. And if my story was compared to others, it would not be considered nearly as traumatic as other stories, but there again is the reason why we are not to compare ourselves with others. What I was facing was evil enough to bring me to the brink of giving in to the level of rage and revenge that would have been a life-altering event for me had I not come to the cross. God has promised he will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that we might be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This verse is often misrepresented and misunderstood. That verse does not mean there won't be no events that come up which overwhelm us. It can't mean that because Paul himself says later in the second letter to the Corinthians that he and his companions were completely overwhelmed by a sense of impending death when they were in Macedonia. The point of the statement is not that we won't have overwhelming attacks or overwhelming events, but that God will make a way of escape from them. Paul felt despair, he says. Despair implies hopeless collapse. Yet he survived it enough to tell us about how he came through it. The same is true with not only dealing with evil which attacks us, but with forgiving evil deeds done either to us or to those we care for. Jesus is the obvious model here. The cross, the cross was overwhelming. It swallowed him whole. He forgave his torturers, entered the belly of the grave, and tore death's heart out on his way up from the tomb. This is our example in the face of overwhelming odds, overwhelming evil, overwhelming loss. Death is truly dead. So from that position we say to the whole world, be reconciled to God. We must learn to live this message. Not every generation of believers has to learn this lesson to the same degree. So far we have not had 
to do it on a very large scale, most of us. We may eventually have to do it on the ultimate scale. But even when we don't face it at its most demanding, the call of Christ upon us to Christ-likeness is still our destiny. And God will work in us as much as our lifespan allows in conforming us into his full image and likeness and to become people of love and wisdom who heal the whole world. So hopefully we're beginning to understand that to forgive is not about taking some weak, non-confrontive posture in the face of evil. It is simply that forgiveness is the only way to eventually overcome and destroy evil and at the same time make a way for full redemption. If we're not God, and we're obviously not, it's understandable for us to think only in human horizontal terms. And if we're limited to merely the horizontal, human to human, then the best we can ever hope for, at least, is punitive justice, which really is just short of saying revenge, payback. And at best, maybe on rare occasions, we might see redemptive justice in which the best that we can hope for is that the fugitive gets caught, and if things go exceptionally well, something of what was lost may be recovered, except in the case of human life, which can't be recovered. But if we in the horizontal human realm have the power that made the worlds descend down to us and then in us from the vertical If the vertical comes down to us from heaven, notice that makes the cross. Then that which on the merely human horizontal level becomes transcended by another power, one which created the worlds and can achieve not merely a cancellation of grievances, but a restoration of what was taken. And then even beyond restoration the creation of a new and living love and goodness that was actually formed out of the ashes of what was previously on the mere human level, nothing but a hopeless lost ash heap of hate and sorrow. If by his incarnational power and presence we can not only forgive but restore and not only restore but even resurrect what was dead, then it makes perfect sense that the one from above who has come down to teach us how to live speaks as if there is no evil so great that it cannot be forgiven, no enemy so mean that he cannot be loved, no loss so tragic that it cannot be restored. If we begin to think of tragedies caused by human evil on those terms, then it becomes not only reasonable to forgive, but absolutely unreasonable to not forgive. Did you hear what I just said? If Christ has come down to us, died for us and risen from the dead and brought the vertical into the horizontal in the power of the cross, 
then that's the reason that he speaks to us as if the most terrible event in history is still not the, the, the deciding event. See, it's not the horror that's the main event. It's what Jesus did at the cross and the resurrection to reverse the horror. Now, for a person suffering the trauma of the horror without a vision of what I just said, then yes, they need help to heal through the trauma of the horror. But I know too many people from my own experience. Mary and I have met too many people, walked with too many people who've come through these kinds of horrors. And we're not nearly as uh, familiar as many other men and women in the body of Christ who have walked through the, the, these kinds of horrors in other parts of the world and are doing so right now. Testimony after testimony. I know Mary and I knew years ago a woman in New York City who was raising the boy who killed her only son. And with a face full of life and light and love and, and truth, she said, why would I let there be two boys destroyed? Uh, my son is not destroyed. He's with the Lord. And this boy who took my son's life I now have taken him into the circle of our family's love. And now, now I have two sons. Whereas if I gave in to hatred and death, I would lose a son and hate an enemy. Now I have a son and I have another son. You say, well, that's beyond my imagination. Yeah, it's beyond my imagination too. It's beyond the horizontal. It's not beyond the vertical. Christ in me has the power to do this because that's what he did at the cross. That's the whole meaning of the cross, among other things we won't get into now. But let me close by trying to illustrate this with one more story that might be even more effective in getting it across. Mary and I have many favorite churches, but I guess of all of our favorite churches in the country, one that we loved the most was uh, at the, the campus of Texas A&M University, uh, Aldersgate Methodist Church, a church that was in renewal. Uh, several hundred people, many college students attended black, white, Hispanic, multicultural filled with the Holy Spirit. Their services were amazing demonstrations of the kingdom of God. Uh, I remember the morning, the first morning that I spoke, uh, they had a, a wedding in the middle of the worship service. The worship service went from Bach to uh, high church uh, Bach choral music to Andre Crouch and the Disciples, uh, Rock'em Sock'em Holy Ghost music. And uh, then I preached, and then they had a wedding, and then they had a, a, a water baptism, which was in a coffin. The coffin was waterproof uh, to illustrate that we are buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. And uh, then they had communion. And uh, that was just kind of a normal service for them. But on another occasion when we were there, uh, during the worship service, I couldn't help but notice there on the podium an amazing portrait, an oil painting. The, the painting was almost life-size. 
And it was the Lord Jesus on the cross, but rather than a, a, a picture of the cross, it was just Jesus' body in a cruciform. And he was the image of light in the, the, the picture. Everything else around him was a darkness beyond dark. And whoever had painted this portrait had the genius of doing it in such a way that the imagery appeared as if the darkness was being taken into the body of the Lord Jesus, which is theologically absolutely correct. I couldn't take my eyes off of it, and the pastor whispered to me, and he said, I'll tell you about where that portrait came from afterwards. I said, well, is it a is it one of the old masters? He said, no, it's better than that. So after the service, he he pointed out a group of people who were taking communion together. And he said, see those folks at the altar, they're, they're related to this portrait. He said, let me tell you how. He said, several years ago, there was a, a, a very beloved elderly lady who ran a store down the street from this church. The whole community, college students, everybody knew her and loved her. Two young brothers broke in on her as she was closing one night and robbed her and killed her. One day, the mother of those murderers came to me. She attended this church. and She said, Pastor, would you please go to the prison and speak to my sons? Of course, I did. He said, the older brother did not uh, hesitate to let me come. And I was able to pray with him, and I baptized him, and just a few days later, did his funeral after his execution. The younger son, though, would not see me. He he would not let me come. And so the dreadful day finally came for his execution. And we went sorrowful and hopeless where he was concerned to gather his belongings. And what we found was a letter and this portrait. The letter said, addressed to his mother, Mom, I'm so sorry I couldn't face you or the preacher. But you got to know that I did face him. Speaking of the one in the portrait. I'm all right, Mom. I'm forgiven. And then Terry looked at me with pastoral eyes, the kind of eyes that only are developed from observing the worst and the best in human experience. And he said, we got three dead bodies here and zero death in this picture. Three dead bodies, the body of two executed murderers and the body of the precious, beloved woman killed by their hand. But there's no death in this story. He said, let me tell you why. Not only are they all with the Lord, the the woman and her murderers, but he said, you see those people I pointed out that were taking communion together? He said, they take communion together every Sunday that we serve communion. That's the family of the murdered woman and the family of of the murderers. They share the body and blood of Jesus together every time we worship. Three deaths, zero death.
Let's bring this full circle back to the main point we began with. How do we live free from the fear of impending evil? This is how perfect love casts out all fear. 1 John chapter 4 tells us perfect love casts out all fear. Proverbs 1 says those who fear the Lord will fear nothing else. Those who fear the Lord will live in peace and be free from the fear of impending evil. God wants you to be free from the fear of potential danger, potential tragedy, potential death, potential invasion, potential terrorist activity, potential loss of loved ones. He wants you to be free of that fear. And the way to do it, among other things, is to make sure you have no unforgiveness in your heart and that you have more confidence in the cross than you have in human evil. That you have more faith in the resurrection power of Jesus than you have in the power of death wielded by human evil or demonic evil because Jesus has destroyed death. Father, I pray for every man and woman, boy or girl, who's listening to this message. I pray for any person who still may be struggling with unforgiveness in any way. I pray, Father, the Holy Spirit will take this message and use it as a liberating trumpet call so that we all will live not only free from unforgiveness, but free from the fear of death and hell and destruction so that we become lights in the world and bring reconciliation beyond reconciliation, even bring resurrection. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. Lord willing, we'll talk next time.